1: Hi everybody, welcome back to the Heredity Podcast, I'm Mike Poynter. As regular listeners will know, Heredity awards a prize each year for the best papers published in the journal that were led by student authors. As we creep closer to the end of 2023, it was recently announced that this year's winner is Ellen Nikhelsky, for a paper that she published with co-authors Alexander Ruptsov and Darren Irwin on mitonuclear introgression between a pair of species of passerine birds. I wanted to know what about Ellen's paper had impressed the panel, and if I can paraphrase their response, they said that it was a multifaceted study that encompassed extensive fieldwork and genomics to test hypotheses in the emerging field of mitonuclear ecology. The analyses were impressively comprehensive, and the research was, I quote, conceptually and technically sophisticated and among the first of its kind in wildlife species. Now, I'm really an expert on the particular topics that we discuss on the podcast, but I know even less about this subject. It wasn't even something I'd ever heard about before reading this paper. But who better to explain it to us than Ellen herself? So welcome to the show, Ellen. Thanks for joining me. An easy question to start off with. Would you please tell us who you are and what you do?
2: 1,000 to 1,500 proteins that are coded by nuclear genes to be imported into the mitochondria. And a small subset of those nuclear proteins, we call them mitonuclear proteins, are going to be interacting directly with products of the mitochondrial genome or the mitochondrial genome itself. And those interactions are what drive coevolution between um, the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome. And that can have implications with if you see very divergent mitochondrial genomes between organisms. Um, Any hybridization between them could lead...
1: So there are a few things to dig into so that we can understand the background for this study. You've mentioned one already, you said mitonuclear. So what does that mean?
2: As post-zygotic barriers, and therefore kind of drive speciation and a continuous divergence between these
3: uh, different taxa. Yeah, so my
2: study system for this paper and for my master's was the yellowhammer and pine bunting. They're two um, avian species of the family Emberizidae, so kind of these sparrow like birds. Um, and what's interesting about them is they're extremely phenotypically divergent. So the yellowhammer is this bright yellow bird, it has minimal facial markings. Whereas the pine bunting is this mostly white bird, but has these very distinct chestnut markings. And what we see is the yellow hammer is in the west. And um, of the.
1: Okay, so because there has to be this cooperation between the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome, they usually co evolve. And in situations where populations are physically separated, differences that accumulate on either of the two genomes through selection or through drift, can mean that if those populations come back into contact, any new combinations that are created that have not been co-evolving could be less fit or even inviolable. I think I get it. So tell us a bit about the birds that you study and why they're a good system for these type of questions.
2: Um, Potentially looking at how uh, in the past where Pleistocene glaciation could have separated them, how that led to their divergence, what happens when they come back together. But what they found is that the mitochondrial DNA of these two species was basically completely the same. There was very little differentiation at all, um, despite the phenotypic differences that we saw. Um, but there was some nuclear differentiation, So it became this question of, well, are these birds not that old in terms of when they diverged and they just became different really, really fast? Or is this a situation of mitochondrial capture, where one of the mitochondrial genomes of one of the species ended up intergressing into the other species um, so that they actually diverged a long time ago? And that was kind of my starting point
3: for my project. Yeah. So
2: normally what we would expect is because the mitochondrial genome has such a low effective population size, it's going to be having these, this fixation of differences between uh, different groups really, really quickly. So we're going to see a lot of differentiation between diverged species and a lot more on the mitochondrial genome compared to what you
3: would see on the nuclear genome. So it was the exact opposite.
2: Yeah, so when I stepped into this project, um, I was a little master student who didn't really know what I was doing. And so my supervisor said, hey, we had looked at this system in the past, um, but we want to look at it with more genomic data. So in the past, they had worked with these AFLP markers, which are these fragment length polymorphisms uh, where you're comparing between different groups, but you're not actually getting DNA sequences. So he said, let's get actual DNA sequences, look at what kind of. Different
1: okay, fascinating. Uh, and that's the opposite to the pattern that you might expect, right? Because of how the mitochondrial genome is inherited and how it evolves.
2: By uh, Morales et al. from Paul Sinek's lab with the Eastern Yellow Robins, that was talking about this idea of mitochondrial capture and how it could relate to myonuclear co evolution. And so that's quite different from the, the circumstance that I described before, where we're seeing uh, this co divergence of mitochondrial and nuclear genomes. And in this.
1: Great. So you said that that was your starting point. And what were your aims then? What were you trying to find out here?
2: In that same direction, in order to support these um, co evolved my combinations. So I was very insistent with my supervisor and kind of said, hey, Can we also look at this and just see if this is happening? So the main goals were kind of to do this more large scale uh, study of genetic differentiation between these groups using actual DNA sequences in the form of GBS. So reduced representation sequencing and then also use that data to look for this potential for my nuclear co-integration and this potential for um, my nuclear
3: co-evolution acting in the system. Yeah,
2: so a lot of the, the samples were legacy samples. So we were able to use some that were in the back of our negative 80 freezers from that um, 2009 study. Uh, some of those samples were collected by a collaborator in Russia, Alex Rupsov. Um, a lot of those came from museums. And more samples were sent to us from Alex, who had been doing, who had been studying the system for years and years and years. So most of the samples, or all of the samples, I didn't collect. Um, I was just very appreciatively given them. But I did actually get to go see the, the study site in Siberia, very kind of surprisingly um, towards the middle of my degree.
3: Yeah. Yeah, so as I mentioned, we
2: used uh, reduced representation sequencing, so GBS.
3: Cool.
1: So in order to do that, I assume you had to get hold of some samples, tissue from these birds, or blood potentially. What did your sampling look like for this project?
2: A spread of variants across the nuclear genome. And then, of course, we went through all the bioinformatics to get files that told us what the variants were between in this case, for this paper, we were looking at the allopatric populations um, to see where we saw differences between the two. Once we had those files, we could calculate your standard population statistics like FST, uh, pi between, also known as DXY, uh, pi within for this, uh, the species, and then Tajima's D. And then we could use that information to look um, at things like PCAs to see if we're seeing good separation between the two populations, whether they are kind of genetically distinct groups.
1: Uh, nice. We love a bit of fieldwork. Get away from your laptop screen for a little
2: while. To identify P-
1: so armed with those samples, what techniques did you use? What approaches did you take to try to answer your research questions?
2: Nuclear coal integration, that was something that we had to kind of think about and develop. So We had a list of myonuclear genes that I had identified based on literature that I thought would be really important for these myonuclear interactions and likely to, if anything happened to the mitochondrial genome, they would respond in some way. And we had to identify what pattern we would expect to see. So we would expect myonuclear genes to integrate like the mitochondrial genome. And the kind of signal that we were looking for as a proxy of integration was these low to D regions in a population, which uh, negative to D is representative of selective sweeps. And we were looking for low to D regions that were also low pi-between or DXY regions. We're seeing uh, very little differentiation between the two populations. And that was kind of our signal that these areas of the genome are very similar between the two groups, and they've swept in one population, potentially as a result of integration. So we're looking at for associations between our list of genes and these regions to see whether that's significant and could indicate that
3: integration had occurred.
2: Yeah. What did we see? Um, So the first thing that we saw is that, yes, these two populations, these two allopatric populations could be separated in distinct genetic clusters. This was kind of already noted in uh, the original paper, but we could show that when we looked at the whole genome, they were something different. But the kind of average FST that we saw was very low, so around 0.02, which is about the level that we would expect to see in subspecies, not species themselves, which could indicate that something is happening in the hybrid zone, which we didn't address in this paper, but we did address in a later one.
1: Perfect. That was a really good explanation. For any younger students or people at the beginning of their genetics careers at the moment. That really well illustrates what doing genomics is a lot of the time. The only way we have to look at past evolution is to compare and contrast the patterns that we expect to see under different evolutionary scenarios to what we actually observe by combining multiple different measures, because they tell us slightly different things. So coming to the exciting bit, what did you find out?
2: Major population genetic conclusions that we saw. In terms of the minor stuff, which, of course, I find most interesting, we so actually did see an association between my genes and these potential integration regions when we looked at the yellow hammer, which we didn't see a significant signal when we looked at the pine bunting, which could indicate that if co had occurred, it went from pine buntings into yellow hammers. And kind of... More support for this potentially happening is we saw this kind of um, pattern of specific functions of my nuclear genes appearing in these regions. So those associated with the mitoribosome, um, which is a ribosome that we see within the mitochondria and consists of RNA molecules that come from the mitochondrial genome, but protein subunits that come from the nuclear genome. And we also saw this pattern in specific um, electron transport system complexes, specifically complex 4. And in this complex, we have um, proteins that are encoded by the mitochondrial genome interacting with mitonuclear proteins that are encoded by the nuclear genome. And it's a specifically interesting complex because we see a lot of interactions between the mitochondrial proteins and the, the mitonuclear proteins, because the mitochondrial proteins are in the center of the complex and have to interact with everything around it. And this has actually been identified as an area of importance for my nuclear evolution in other systems. So it seemed quite, um, there seemed to be a lot of potential with these results. And um, though we acknowledge that what we did with the reduced representation um, sequencing was not perhaps ideal for looking at my nuclear integration, we felt that there was enough kind of interconnected results that presented a strong kind of support for this process that should be investigated potentially with whole
3: genome sequencing or other approaches. Yeah. So that is a, a question. It's a really
2: good question. And it's one we have to think about is if these mitonuclear um, kind of combinations need to be maintained, why would we even see co Because that would just introduce potentially a lot of incompatibility in the receiving population um, that would just be bad in general. And there's kind of two reasons why we think it could happen well three um, like you said the mitochondrial genome could be adaptive in some way and that amount of adapt adaptation that you get kind of overwrites the disadvantageous issues that you see with having incompatible mitonuclear combinations um, and then the the nuclear genes can just catch up with time uh, the other one that is talked about a lot is that because the mitochondrial genome has.
1: One thing I was wondering while reading the paper was that if the introgressing variants have swept in the population that received them, gone to high frequency, they're presumably adaptive in that population.
2: mutations kind of accumulating on the mitochondrial genome. And what that means is that your mitochondrial genome is um, getting higher and higher in mutational load. And depending on. Kind of random factors, you might have one species or one taxa that has a much higher mutational load than another one, and so instead of the mitochondrial genome just having this random adaptation, it might just be that the one that integrates has a lower mutational load and is just it's beneficial to bring that into a population, and that is kind of the driver of co-integration. And then the third option, of course, is just everything's random. So populations get really small because of Pleistocene glaciations or changes in uh, habitat. They meet and it just kind of drifts to fixation and then leads to this co-integression over time. So, yeah, there's
4: a
3: couple different kind of factors you have to think about. Yeah, so
2: in the Eastern Yellow uh, Robin population that I mentioned before, that was kind of the driver for this co integration argument. um, What they have is this really interesting parallel where, now I need to make sure I I get this right, Um, there is separation in nuclear uh, differentiation north-south and then uh, differentiation
1: Okay, interesting. I spend a lot of my time thinking about genetic load at the moment, but in the nuclear genome. It's obviously a bit different if that genome is haploid and you can't have masked load that's heterozygous and not expressed. This stuff is really cool to think about. Linked to my previous question, if these mitonuclear combinations are being selected for, because the mitochondria are involved in energy production, metabolism, stuff excuse my lack of cell biology knowledge, you might expect to see this process of introgression more in contexts where metabolism is particularly important, maybe across temperature gradients or something. Is there any evidence that that's the case?
2: These much more temperate conditions, that because we know that mitochondrial function is uh, subject to differences in different temperature climates, um, it might have been this situation where one of those haplotypes was better suited to this hot arid climate in terms of the metabolic kind of output um, compared to the coastal. And that was what drived these different co-integression processes. Yeah. And um, there has been work in systems where it's a little easier to kind of tackle the mitochondria, and the metabolic outputs. And they have shown that uh, when you put incompatible combinations of mitonuclear and mitochondrial genes together, you're actually going to see a loss in function in mitochondrial processes. So like in the, the complexes of the electron transport system, you'll see drops in their metabolic output, how
3: many molecules are being processed, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, goodness.
2: Well, I'm very metanuclear biased. I think this this stuff is so cool. Um, so I guess the first one, and and this reputation as kind of started to dissipate. I think it's mostly gone, but um, it used to be said that any variation that you're seeing on the mitochondrial genome is neutral. It just is there. That's why it's so easy to use it in phylogenetics, which I understand. And I think it still has a, a place in phylogenetics, but I think we're past the point of saying that that type of variation is neutral and it actually is very important to a lot of evolutionary processes so in this case we're seeing how these interactions between variation in the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome can actually be this homogenizing influence between these two birds where we're seeing this co um of these mitonuclear genes which could actually potentially explain why we're seeing such low uh
1: fantastic as we come towards the end now do you have a key thing that you'd like people to take away from reading or hearing about this paper?
2: Which is kind of a bit of a spoiler or related to the other paper that we did on hybrid zone of this group. Um, But we also have to think about it in the context of what I talked about earlier, where we can have these, this co-divergence of the mitochondrial genome and uh, these minor genes and this creation of these potentially very important um, post-zygotic barriers in the form of these genetic incompatibilities between groups. And the mitochondria is one of the defining features of uh, eukarya. And so with that in mind, what we're seeing in birds, in all these other systems where we've looked at mitonucleic um, coevolution, could be a very general pattern. And could be something that drives speciation or evolutionary patterns across a wide variety of uh, orders and groups. Um, It does get a little bit more complicated when you leave the bilaterian animals. But even in plants and fungi where you have this additional kind of chloroplast um, interactions that could be happening, it still has a place in driving evolution. Um so hopefully I guess my take home message is when you're thinking about uh difference, uh diversification and all that kind of stuff, give a, a little thought towards my nuclear coevolution. <laughs>
3: Um, overwhelming. I honestly,
2: when I got that email, I thought it was spam. Um, and it kind of took me a moment because obviously we get so many spam emails about, hey, here's a journal, please write a paper for it. And I was just like, oh, you know, it's one of those. And then I I did remember that I had clicked the box for this student prize. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is something and then i looked into it i'm like oh my goodness um so I was very overwhelmed and very honored uh to receive it and i was also very happy that um something that i'm obsessed with my nuclear co-evolution kind of had a little moment in the limelight and maybe more people would hear about it and consider it as part of their research
3: i hope so Great. That sounds reasonable to me. I'm happy to take that one
1: home. And we're talking today because your paper, or you for your paper, have won the prize for the best student paper in Heredity this year. How does that feel?
2: Cool podcast. That's the real prize for sure. (laughs) And um, you also get uh, a one-year subscription to the Genetics Society. So... It's quite a substantial prize that I was not expecting at all.
3: (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, so the paper is called high
2: heterogeneity in genomic differentiation between phenotypically divergent songbirds, a test of my nuclear coevolution. And in terms of shout outs, I'll shout out my co-authors. So Alexander Rupsov is a curator at the State Darwin Museum in Moscow. And
1: Yes, well, hopefully hearing you talk about it today will also help.
2: And, um,
1: and is there, this is a genuine question, I should know this, but I don't. Is there an actual prize?
2: Um, My other co-author is Dr. Darren Irwin, who was my master supervisor at UBC. Um, So he's a a major force in hybridization and avian species.
1: (laughs) That's the real prize.
2: And I'll also talk about um, the Tanziv family, who uh, kind of allowed us to come to their their home and their farm in Siberia when I came to go see um, my birds. Nice.
1: Well, it's a great paper. I'm not as surprised as you.
2: And um, fed us so well. Well,
1: it's been great to talk to you and to hear about your work. Would you finish off by reminding us of the title of the paper and giving a shout out to your co-authors and anybody else who deserves one?
2: And um, taught us. And yeah, I think just all the people at UBC who supported me during this whole process that has ups and downs because I definitely had to write this all up in COVID. <laughs> so it was quite a, quite a um,
3: trial at times.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. There is Dr. Darren Irwin, who was my master supervisor at UBC. Um, So he's a a major force in hybridization and avian species and uh, speciation. And I'll also talk about um, the Tanziv family who uh, kind of allowed us to come to their their home and their farm in Siberia. When I came to go see um, my birds, they were incredibly welcoming and um, fed us so well. I think I ate better there than I had for the entirety of grad school. And um, I, I think about them a lot and all the things that they they showed us and um, taught us. And yeah, I think just all the people at UBC who supported me during this whole process that has ups and downs because I definitely had to write this all up. In COVID, <laughs> so it was quite a quite a um, trial at times.
1: Well, just desserts now, Ellen. Congratulations on the prize! Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been really nice.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: While Ellen's paper emerged as the winner, the race was close-run, and there were two runners-up. One of those was Max Hirschfield, who was a guest on the podcast a few episodes ago so go back and catch up on the episode to hear about his work on the Galapagos shark. The other runner-up was Joost de Jong from Wageningen University in the Netherlands for his paper Spatial Genetic Structure of European Wild Boar with Inferences on Late Pleistocene and Holocene Demographic History. And an honourable mention goes to Miko Kivukovsky from the University of Helsinki for the Best Methods paper, Predicting Recombination Frequency from Map Distance. As always, you can find Ellen's paper, along with all the others I've just mentioned, on the Heredity website, which is nature.com forward slash h-d-y. And while you're there, you can also find information on how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is a journal of the Genetic Society, one of the world's oldest learned societies, which aims to support research on and promote the public understanding of genetics. I'm Mike Pointer. Thanks for listening.